Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On the program today, we're nearing the end of our fourth week in our series in Philippians, The Fellowship of the Gospel. As we continue our discussion of chapter 3, we'll look at verses 9 to 11. So let's begin as we listen to a message entitled, Remembering the Gospel. We're all familiar with the concept of giving something to get something. Whenever we buy anything, we give up our money to get a product. And when we go to work, we give up our time and our energy and efforts and talents in order to get money. When we get married, we give up some of our freedom and autonomy to get love and relationship and intimacy. And such is the nature of most of our transactions in life. We give in order to get. We also know that at times we decide not to give because that which we would get is not worthy of the sacrifice. You decide not to buy a car because it's too expensive. Too much giving is required and not enough reward is offered, so we walk away. You decide not to buy a very nice house or condo because when you calculate your monthly payments, you come to the conclusion that the monthly sacrifice would make that house very unappealing. Now let's take that concept into our relationship with God. If you were here in the last broadcast, you'll remember that we read Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now here's the transaction. Notice the cost or the price of gaining Christ is extremely high. Jesus put it this way. I'm reading from Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, that's a pretty good deal. That's a bargain of all bargains. Buying that field will bankrupt the buyer, but the treasure he acquires is worth many times more than his total net worth. That's why I never quite agree with the language of sacrificing all for Jesus. How can it be a sacrifice if the treasure you gain is infinitely greater than anything that you gave up to get it? That's that's no sacrifice. That's just a wise investment. You know, I was in my early 20s when I told my parents that I didn't want to inherit the family farm, but rather I wanted to go into pastoral ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually grew up in a difficult church. I lived through the firing of a pastor. And that life looked rough. And furthermore, I loved the farm life. I liked the rhythm of the seasons, and I liked the animals, and I liked the harvest in the fall, and I liked the family atmosphere in which the whole family made a living together. I liked the fact that all farmers I knew retired well. I liked it, but I gave it away. I gave something to get something. There was a transaction, and I claimed Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How many of you would make an investment in today's market that would give you a hundred times your original investment? That's a 10,000% rate of return. Well, I did. And that's the deal I took when I entered the ministry. So as much as I liked the farm life, you could hardly say that I sacrificed that much. I invested in eternity quite well, might I add. And that describes Paul. He may be in prison awaiting a death sentence, and he may have suffered the loss of all status among the Jews, but he has gained Christ. And he thought the so-called sacrifice of all things was just rubbish. So what do we get when we gain Christ? 
Well, let's read Philippians 3, 9 to 11. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, those few verses demand that we slow down a bit, concentrate, take bite-sized chunks, and understand. So what does it mean to gain Christ? Well, I think five things. First of all, it means being spiritually united with him. Notice the words in him or in Christ. These are words Paul uses repeatedly in his letters. Notice how Philippians started out. He said, to all who are saints in Christ Jesus. Bible teachers often call this kind of language union with Christ. In some ways, this phrase is a bit complicated because it refers to a variety of different things, but all of them refer to the fact that we have a relationship with Christ. I mean, look at it this way. I have a relationship with Kathy Newfell. Well, it's complicated. She's my wife. We have a lifelong covenant of marriage, so we're stuck with each other. But we also have a legal agreement between us. But she's also my partner in parenting our children. And she's my lover. And she's my friend and companion. And we share a common bank account. And so she's my financial partner as well. And we're slowly growing old together. And so she's my fellow traveler through life. She's my roommate. My relationship with Kathy is anything but monodimensional. It's multidimensional. And the same is true with the phrase, in Christ. On the one hand, my spiritual union with Christ is experiential. I might say that there's a kind of a mystic relation I have with him. I'm aware of his presence. I sense his power, his example, his urging me on. I'm also keenly aware of his deep, eternal love for me. I know it when I displease him. I speak to him, and when I read his word, I hear his voice speaking to me. I experience Christ. But when I say I'm in Christ, I also have what some Bible teachers call a forensic or a legal relationship with him. Look at it this way. Since I am in him, it means that what Christ has done or his righteous life is counted as my righteousness. After all, my life is hid in him. Theologians call this the doctrine of imputation. That's an old English word, and modern translations will use the word reckoned or counted. That means that everything that Jesus did is thought of or reckoned as being what I did. After all, I'm spiritually united with him. Think of it this way. Sometimes when I'm tempted, I yield to that temptation and I sin. Now that sin is counted against me. And God who is perfectly just then treats me as a sinner deserves and rightfully reserves punishment for me in the future. But not if I'm in Christ. Then Christ's record is what counts. So what was Christ's record like? And what happened when Christ was tempted? Well, we do have that one account in which he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And how does Jesus do? Well, he never sins, never, not once. His record is perfect, no blemishes, always perfectly pleasing the Father. And when I'm in Christ, that record of Jesus is imputed or reckoned or counted as my record. Jesus' righteousness then becomes my righteousness. So when anyone who is in Christ dies and is judged in the final judgment, they will be judged not on the basis of what they did, but on the basis of what Christ did. That's the legal arrangement believers have. 
So that's the first thing that it means to gain Christ. I'm spiritually and eternally united with him. Well, what else does it mean to gain Christ? Well, secondly, it means abandoning merit-based righteousness. Now here, of course, I don't mean the merits of Christ. I mean my own merits. Here, Paul adds that not only am I found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You know, earlier on this passage, Paul explained that before he was converted, he had relied on, in verse 6, a righteousness under the law. That means he believed that his acceptance before God was based upon something that either was done to him as a child or something that he had achieved or accomplished in his life by following the law. So before Paul knew Christ, if you would have asked him how he thought he would do on Judgment Day, he would have told you the seven things from the law found in verses 4 to 6 that he was relying upon. These were the things that had been done to him and the things that he had accomplished. Now, the same is true for some who are listening to me. You may be counting on what your church did to you or what you accomplished. And when you're asked, what if you were to die tonight and find that there is a God who will judge you for your life and that God were to ask you, why should he allow you into heaven? You would say, I've done this best as I knew how. And others say, I was baptized. And still others, I prayed a prayer. And others, I participated in the sacraments. But when I gain Christ, I'm not only spiritually united with him so that his record is what counts rather than my own, but I utterly abandon any hope in what I can do, have done, or is done to me by the hands of other people. I come to know God, carrying nothing of my own work in my hands, That's what it means to gain Christ. Now Paul adds a third item of what he has gained in Christ. He speaks of gaining a righteousness from God that depends on faith. So let's remind ourselves, when Paul surrendered everything and counted it as dung, he gained union with Christ, he gained the righteousness of Christ, and thirdly, he gained confidence in Christ's righteousness. There's so much that we've begun to unpack about what it means to be truly united with Christ and to rely on His righteousness alone. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will go deeper into how genuine faith in Christ transforms us completely. Hi, this is Joshua from In Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. InDoubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio. And you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. Indoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support Indoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit indoubt.ca. You may have noticed when I spoke of gaining confidence in Christ's righteousness that I didn't actually use the word the Bible uses. The Bible simply speaks of a righteousness that depends on faith. 
Now, I change the words not because there's a problem with the word faith, but there is a problem with the way some of us understand the word faith. You see, for some, faith is a static thing rather than an ongoing expression of my confidence in Christ at all times. And I'm seeking to correct false views and to clarify what it means by saying, by faith. Look at it this way. There are those who trust in religious symbols. Their confidence is that the symbol they have, either in their baptism or in the crucifix or cross around their neck, will be a benefit. Kind of like a football player crossing himself before he attempts that 52-yard game-ending field goal. That's the reason for their confidence. You know, others gain confidence in religious experiences. You know, back in the 1700s, Pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a book on this, one of the great classics of the Christian faith. It was simply called Religious Affections. In it is a list of the experiences in which a person might put confidence. For some, the experience that scripture verses come miraculously to mind is their confidence of being accepted by God. For some, it's because they have been miraculously healed by God. For others, it's because they're overwhelmed with spiritual feelings or have been overwhelmed with spiritual experiences. These deep experiences are the basis of their confidence that all is right between them and God. But here in Philippians 3, Paul speaks of faith or confidence in Christ's righteousness, not mine. In other words, I am confident in the way Christ lived. I'm confident in his sinless life, his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death. I am confident that in every way Christ fulfilled the law and pleased his Father. And this alone is my ground for confidence before God, his righteousness imputed or reckoned or counted as my righteousness is my only grounds for confidence. And Paul says, this is what I gained when I spent everything to get that. He was united with Christ and he abandoned all his own merits as giving any hope. And he now trusted in the merits of Christ instead of his own. And fourthly, he gained a real righteousness that comes from God alone. See, righteousness, at least the genuine kind, the kind that leads to life, comes as a gift. We are helplessly dependent upon God for it. You can't produce a genuine righteousness that will please God. You can't become righteous enough for God. You can't be born into it. You can't inherit it from your parents or your society. Your church can't give it to you. If you want the genuine version, it comes from God. He is the only source for it. Let me put it another way. This thing called righteousness is a product sold in only one store. All the other stores sell cheap knockoffs. They are all fraudulent. So let's review. The great treasure of gaining Christ means you're spiritually united to him. You abandon merit-based righteousness. You gain confidence or faith in Christ's righteousness alone. But there's something we have to add here. Trusting in God, faith, the kind that comes from God, the real thing, it is altogether life-transforming. The results of genuine righteousness result in or produce a lifetime of entering into an ever-deepening knowledge of Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 10, that I may know him. See, once Paul abandoned his trust in anything but the righteousness of God in Christ, it left him with but one passion, I must know Christ. 
Please understand that Paul has been a Christian for 30 years when he writes verse 10. In other words, knowing Christ is not a one-time event. It's the project of a lifetime. For in the end, that's the prize for which a man or a woman will abandon everything. It is the knowledge of Christ that presses us on. Look at it this way. If I tell Kathy that I want to know her better, her response is not to question my sanity. I mean, she won't actually walk away thinking, he's in full dementia. He doesn't even remember who I am. Instead, she'll understand me to say that I want to deepen my understanding and my relationship with her. I want our intimacy to reach new levels. Now, of course, the only person that speaks that way is the person who has found the relationship they have to be deeply satisfying so that the pleasure of knowing Christ drives us onward into Christ. Fine, but practically, what does that mean? Well, according to Paul, it means three things. First, he wants to know Christ in experiencing the life of Christ. Look again at verse 10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus is not only a historical fact, but it forms the basis of the believer's experience of Christ. Now, in Ephesians 1, 19 to 20, Paul speaks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in our spiritual experience of Christ. There is unleashed in us a spiritual power that comes from the resurrection, that allows us to walk in what the Bible calls newness of life. It means that the oldness of death is defeated. The patterns of life that led me toward eternal ruin are themselves ruined, and the power of a new experience is now living in me. It's a kind of a down payment, a first installment of what is to come. It's kind of like you getting a mortgage. I mean, before you get one, you must pay a down payment. That's your word of guarantee that the rest of the money that you will owe the bank will be paid. That's what God did in giving us resurrection power. It's God's guarantee that all the power of God will be ours in the end. In the end. We will be raised like Christ and inherit what he has inherited from the Father. Paul says, I want to know more of that. And then he adds, and may share his sufferings. Now, here we find another result of knowing Christ. Paul not only shares or gets a down payment of resurrection power, he also learns to identify with Christ's sufferings. Every time Paul suffers for his faith, he is entering more deeply into an identification with Jesus. He now understands Christ better than before. See, suffering will do that for us if we're in Christ. If I had never suffered, how would I understand and identify with Christ? I need to suffer so that I will understand and become intimate with Christ who suffered for me. Now, so much more could be said, but now to verses 10 and 11 becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, this verse has puzzled some Bible readers. Does Paul not know whether he'll be raised to be like Christ after he dies? Well, yes, he does. He is confident in Christ. What he's expressing here is that he actually doesn't know the means whereby Christ will raise him to be like him. Perhaps he will be beheaded in Rome, and that will be God's means of raising Paul. Or perhaps he will become an old man and die in old age. Or perhaps Christ will return again. And that's when Paul will receive his new body and be fully raised like Christ. But whatever the means, he says, 
I just want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Just bring that on. In other words, if the prize Paul received in abandoning everything was Christ, which means he abandoned all his own righteousness and embraced Christ, the end result is that he has something which so few people have. He has an enduring hope based upon concrete evidence. And so death doesn't scare him. Losing all his savings doesn't scare him. Losing the family farm doesn't scare him. Losing his health doesn't scare him. Losing his freedom and going to prison and awaiting trial doesn't scare him. Why? He would say, I've already lost everything. I've already paid everything. I bought with that an eternal investment. I surrendered my life and my lifestyle and my hopes and my dreams and my moral choices, and I have gained Christ. How about you? I invite you to do the same. In Jesus' name. You know, in just a little while, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. And for those of you who are listening to my voice who have never surrendered your life into the hands of Jesus, I want to lead you gently into the presence of our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to lead you to becoming His servant for the first time. You know, there's a simple way in which we start. We just get on our knees, or if you're in a car, I hope you just pulled over. And you might want to just stop for a while, whatever you're doing, and pray a simple prayer and simply say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've offended you, but I know also that you died on the cross for my sins. And you invite me now to come and surrender everything that I have and all that I own and all the things that I might have loved into your hands. Here, Lord, take everything that is me. I give it to you. Become my Savior and Lord. Take away my sins. Lead me into the way that leads to everlasting. Make me a new person. Give me a new heart. Help me to be a child of God. And indeed, Heavenly Father, I give you my life. In Jesus' name, here's all that I have. And if you've prayed that today, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. What an important, life-changing question to ask ourselves. Have we forsaken all things to follow Christ? Or are we relying on our own achievements, our works, perhaps our spiritual background to get us right with God? May these words from Paul remind us today of pursuing a faith that is built upon the righteousness of Christ alone and live our lives accordingly. Join us tomorrow for our final installment this week in the series, The Fellowship of the Gospel with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically, they would be, how is Dr. Newfeld?" And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good. He provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give, and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain, and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer, and thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.